Well, good morning. Well, this morning, we are going to take a break from our study of Luke, and we're going to begin a new series in the book of Ruth. And this series is going to take us from, oh, about right now to the benediction um, in a few minutes. So <laughs> it's just going to be a one-off. Um, so yes, we're going to cover a whole Old Testament book um, in one sermon. And while it is a short book, we're still not going to be able to um, go verse by verse through it, obviously. So what we're going to do is we're going to drop down in the text here and there, um, as well as consider some other texts to think about what the Lord has to tell us about this book. So to begin with, um, I want to do some background, because when we start a new book, it's always good to do some background on it. Um, So we want to understand some things about the book, some of the sort of the who, what, when, where, and why kinds of things. And we don't run, we don't know actually who wrote um, the book of Ruth from the who perspective. That's one of the books of the Bible that the Lord has not seen fit to tell us who the author was. Um, as to the time period it covers, it happens or it covers the time during the time of Israel's judges. And we'll see in a minute that that's going to be um, significant. Um, but most people believe it was written down later than that, probably during um, the reign of King David. Was it written down? We're not positive at what point in the book of Judges the events of Ruth take place. I saw a couple of different um, options there, but the genealogy found at the end of the book leads a guy named Leon Wood, who, who wrote a book called Survey of Israel's History. It leads him to place it during the time of the judgeship of Gideon, which would be the last half of the 12th century B.C. Um, the where of Ruth is one of the things that makes it really interesting, um, because there are only two locations um, in the book, there is the pagan nation of Moab that we'll talk more about in a minute. Um, and there is what would later be called the city of David, Bethlehem in Judah. And as to the why, well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. That's sort of the subject of the remainder of our time together this morning is why Ruth was written and what we can learn from it as believers. Um, just some additional interesting information. Ruth is one of only two books named after women, Esther being the other one. And it's also the only Old Testament book that is named after someone who is not Jewish. So as we consider Ruth this morning, keep in mind that like all scripture, Ruth was given to us by God to point to Christ, to instruct us, to correct our thinking, and to train us in righteousness. So I want to begin this morning our look at Ruth, our overview of Ruth, looking at what I call a time of trouble. And we're going to be looking in a minute at chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 in Ruth to think about that. But there are, there are, I guess you could say, certain eras and certain circumstances, certain times, certain places into which you wouldn't really want to be born. Um, should you have a choice in such things, which by the way, we don't, right? God providentially places us in the time, place, and circumstances of his choosing, and he calls us to walk faithfully in that. But relatively speaking, certain times and places and circumstances would be worse to be born in than others. Um, Consider, for example, a person who was born or might have been born in the eastern part of Germany in the year 1900. They would have reached young adulthood just as World War I was breaking out. So their late teens, their early 20s. If they survived that cataclysmic event, they would have seen their nation decimated by war and financially ruined by its aftermath. Their savings, had they had any, would have been wiped out at the hand of runaway inflation. If they'd survived that, 
that would have ended the decade of their 20s just as the stock market crashed and the Great Depression began. When they were 33, Adolf Hitler came to power in their country. They would have ended their 30s with a second world war breaking out, and they would have faced various degrees of terror and hardship as that conflict wore on for six years, finally seeing their nation completely destroyed for a second time in their lifetime. Then if they survived that, they would have found themselves in their mid to late 40s trying to rebuild their lives after decades of war and hardship, only to trade the horrors of Nazi Germany for the boot and the brutality of communism. So only if they managed to live to the age of 89 would they see their nation liberated from communist oppression. So for this hypothetical person, what we would commonly call the best years of their lives, or what should have been the best years of their lives, were spent lurching from one disaster to the next, none of which was of their making. And suppose also during this that our hypothetical person was a follower of Jesus Christ. They might have wondered throughout all this going on in their lives, is God still in his heaven? Is God still working on behalf of his people? Can I still trust God in the midst of all this that is happening? And I think that the book of Ruth was written, at least partly, to help us answer questions like that for people in difficult circumstances. And the answer that the book of Ruth gives us, and indeed all of Scripture gives us, is yes. Not only is God continuing to work, but the difficulties and the hardships we face, both personally and corporately as communities and nations, are means that he uses to accomplish his will, which is always for his glory and for the good of his people. So maybe there are some people here this morning that feel like our hypothetical person. You look around at what's happening in the world and you think, well, how could things get worse? And then you wake up and you read the news and you're like, well, they did, right? Um, Or you're in a personal circumstance that seems insurmountable and you wonder if there's any reason for hope. And so I think the book of Ruth has a message for us in both of those categories because the people in the book deal with both of those things, both personal and corporate tragedy. So let's begin our survey of Ruth at the very first verse. I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So like our hypothetical person, tragedy just builds and builds during these first few verses. This isn't just a throwaway introduction to the book. It's designed to help us see the dire circumstances at the beginning of this story. The book begins with words that would have had ominous connotations to the original reader in the days when the judges ruled. They might have heard something like, during one of the worst times 
in our nation's history. The book of Judges chronicles the apostasy of the nation of Israel after the generation who was alive during the conquest had died out. And we see that the generation who entered the promised land did not drive out all the pagan peoples as God had commanded. And so as a result, their children began to worship the gods of these peoples. And Judges is often summed up with a single verse, which actually appears verbatim twice in the book. And that is the first time of which is Judges 17.6, which says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That sounds as current to me as the morning news. Throughout the book, we see the turmoil and the destruction that results from Israel forsaking the Lord. And by the time the Judges ends... We're told of an incident incident with a Levite and his concubine that is essentially a repeat of the Sodom and Gomorrah story. That is how far Israel had fallen. So it was a very dark time indeed in their national history. And famine, frankly, was to be expected. It was one of the curses that God promised if the people turned their back on him and began to worship idols. And so if this took place in the time of Gideon, as was suggested, we know that there were raiding parties of Midianites that regularly swept in, took the crops, took the livestock, took the food, and ran off with it. And so that's going to cause famine. But we see as this introduction goes on that it gets worse. In the midst of the famine, Elimelech decides to take his family to live among God's, the enemies of God, the people of Moab. Now, the Moabites were descendants of, from an incestuous encounter between Lot and one of his daughters after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. They have a long history of opposing Israel. During Israel's sojourn in the desert, after the Exodus, we see Balak, king of Moab, seeking to curse the people of Israel through the prophet Balaam. And when that didn't work, the people of Moab seduced the Israelites into sexual sin and idol worship, and this resulted in the deaths of 24,000 people by plague at the hand of God. And so by the time we get to about to being into the promised land in Deuteronomy, and they're being given the law again, in Deuteronomy 23, the people are instructed, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. And you see in the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Zephaniah, I might be missing one or two. They all prophesied against Moab and told of their destruction at God's hand because of their idolatry and how they had treated the people of Israel. And yet, and yet, there's also this verse in Jeremiah 48, 47, where God says, Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord. Thus far is the judgment on Moab. And one of the things that we see in Ruth, just kind of as an aside, is how God has begun to do that, has begun to fulfill that prophecy that had not even been made yet at the time of the events of Ruth. Now the text doesn't tell us whether Elimelech's decision was a good one or a bad one. That's sort of left to the reader to decide. But given what we just looked at, given the commands from God not to intermingle with the pagan peoples around them, it's really hard to justify Elimelech's actions. And the tragedy continues then as we see Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi a widow. Oh, but at least she has two sons. Then we see that these two sons, again, contrary to God's commands, marry foreign women. 
And as a final blow, both of her sons die. This was the worst position that a woman could be in in the ancient world, being a widow with no sons to look after her. And so to compound that, Naomi was in that position in a pagan land, far from the people of God. And so we see in Naomi, at this point, a broken woman. She says in verse 13 of chapter 1, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So have you ever been in a situation like that? I have. Where where one blow after another comes, after another comes, and you think, God must be against me because if he was for me, surely these things wouldn't be happening to me. But is that true? Is difficulty always a sign that God has forsaken us or that his hand is against us? And like I said in the introduction, we find the answer throughout Scripture, including the book of Ruth. The answer to that question is no. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We're told as believers to expect things like this in our lives. James 1, beginning in verse 2, says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Well, in the midst of all this bad news, Naomi receives a bit of good news from home. She hears, some translations say, in the fields of Moab, which may indicate that she was gleaning or gathering crops for sustenance in Moab that God has brought the famine to an end back in Israel. Verse 6 of chapter 1 literally says she heard that God had given them bread. So in other words, Bethlehem, which means house of bread, had again become what its name indicates. So Naomi decides to return to her hometown back in Israel. And so here we're going to switch gears a bit. We're going to move from talking about and thinking about a time of trouble to thinking about a refuge among God's people. We're going to be looking at a minute in chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. So Naomi decides to go back to Bethlehem, but this is not just a returning to a physical place, not just returning to a place of comfort or a place where everybody knows your name, um, but returning to the right place for a follower of God, which is to be among his people, to be among fellow believers. This is essentially a reversal of Elimelech's decision to turn his back on God's people and God's place for the temporarily greener pastures of Moab. Years after this, David would write in Psalm 8410, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. One commentator says return is a key word in the book of Ruth. It's a picture of repentance. Naomi is turning her back on Moab and all that that represents as she's setting out for Bethlehem in Judea. She doesn't know what awaits her there. She knows that perhaps the famine has ended from what she's heard, but what's become of her friends? What's become of her family? What's become of her house? She has no way to know any of that, communication being what it was in that day. She just knows that whatever her lot in life is going forward, and she didn't view that lot as very good at this point. She sees only hardship in her future. And yet, she knows she'll be better off among God's people in those circumstances 
than among his enemies. You know, hundreds of years later, the writer of Hebrews is addressing people under great duress for their faith, people who are considering abandoning Christ because that will make their lives temporarily easier in this life. And one of the things he tells them is this. In Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, being among the people of God is essential for the believer, whether in good times or in bad, but particularly when facing difficulty. Being among the people of God is our refuge from the world. It's a place of encouragement. It's a place of hope. When those things are in short supply elsewhere. And it's here that our story takes an interesting and somewhat surprising turn. While Naomi is seeking to return to her family and her people, one of her Moabite daughters-in-law is seeking to do just the opposite of that. Ruth seeks to leave her family. She seeks to leave her home. She seeks to leave her people in order to follow Naomi into the unknown. And remember, this is a much bigger unknown for Ruth than it would be for Naomi. Ruth has never been to Bethlehem. So we read in chapter 4, I mean, I'm sorry, chapter 1, beginning in verse 14, speaking of the three ladies, Ruth, Orpah, and Naomi, says, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. I saw one commentator called that the anti-evangelism passage. (laughs) She's saying, don't follow my God. But, (laughs) um, But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. And this is one of the most beautiful passages, I think, in Scripture. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So why does Ruth do this? Orpah went back to her family. I mean, that seems the most logical and reasonable thing to do, right? For a young widow to go back to her natural family for support and for care. But I think that the reason Ruth did that is because ultimately Ruth wasn't just following Naomi. Ruth was following Naomi's God. At some point in her life, Ruth had moved from just loving Naomi to loving Naomi's God. Your people shall be my people and your God My God. Notice the connection between those two things. Your people and your God. Ruth's people were now whoever were followers of Naomi's God. Not her natural family, not her fellow citizens of the nation of Moab, but a people defined by their relationship to the one true God of the universe. And we see this concept even more clearly in the New Testament. After the disciples are pondering the earthly cost of following him, Jesus says this in Matthew 19, 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And on a more, at least temporally speaking, 
ominous note, we read in Matthew 10, beginning in verse 34, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So friends, if we are followers of Christ, our primary loyalty is to him and our primary family is fellow believers, even above our natural family, if they are not among Christ's followers. That's a hard teaching. That's a hard teaching. I'll stand here this morning and admit. And I think, unfortunately, some false teaching and even outright apostasy that creeps into churches today does so because believers seek to justify the sinful actions of those they love rather than admitting those actions are disobedient to God and calling their loved ones to repentance. Because it is a hard teaching. Ruth loved Naomi because Ruth loved Naomi's God. And when they reach Bethlehem, Ruth continues to show her love for God by caring for Naomi in the way that God prescribed for his people to go into the fields and to glean. We see in Leviticus 23.22, And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. This was a command for the landowner, but it was also a command for the poor person. Here is provision from you for the Lord, from the Lord, Go and take advantage of it. And so Ruth is not from among the people of Israel ethnically. She's one of the sojourners mentioned in Leviticus. But she willingly submits to the commands of Israel's God because that's who she now follows. And I think we get a beautiful picture of the church and of Christian community in the midst of Boaz's field as we see his interaction with Ruth. So in Ruth 2, beginning in verse 10, we read this. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to me, your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So we see here Boaz encouraging her. We see Boaz affirming God's graciousness and love for her. These are all things the church, in concert with God's word and the Holy Spirit, is called to do. We see Boaz essentially taking her in and making her feel welcome in the family of God. Because as he points out, Ruth has left everything else behind to follow the Lord. And that's true for all of us who come to faith in Christ. There is a sense in which we all have things that we once loved that we must leave behind in order to follow Christ. 
And we need other believers around us to encourage us in that and to help us walk in newness of life because it's very easy to go back to our old ways left to ourselves. We need each other as fellow believers. And this imagery of God gathering his people beneath his wings is found throughout scripture. It's a beautiful picture. Psalm 36, 7, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. God's people find refuge under his wings and the tangible expression of that in the world is his church, is the people of God. So friends, don't forsake the assembling together with God's people, particularly in the midst of difficulty when it is sometimes easier to pull away into isolation. Ruth seeks refuge under God's wings and among his people, and God stands ready to provide that refuge to us today through his church in the midst of a world that is admittedly in much turmoil. The last thing we're going to look at this morning, and I think probably the, the, the key thing about the book, is a redeemer secures the future. And in a minute, we're going to look at chapter 4. We're going to read verses 13 through 17. So Ruth is not just a moving story about a foreigner who finds the one true God and finds a place among his people where she can live happily ever after. It's actually a story of God's faithfulness to his promises across the ages. And it's a reminder to us that in all the events of life, both for us as individuals and as part of peoples and nations, God is working out his plan. Thousands of years before Naomi experienced devastating loss, thousands of years before Ruth came to know the God of Israel and to dwell with his people, God made a promise to the very first human beings. He made a promise that one day a savior would come. One would come who would reverse the curse brought about by man's disobedience. One who would bruise the head of the serpent, as we read about in Genesis 3.15. And hundreds of years after that, but still hundreds of years before the events of Ruth, God made a covenant with Abraham in keeping with this promise to Adam and Eve. So in Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1, we read, Now the Lord said to Abraham, or Abram, excuse me, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This blessing is going to come through a redeemer. And this redeemer is going to come through a line of people, descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, specifically through Jacob's son, Judah. Hundreds of years later, after Israel was set free from Egyptian slavery, God provides them with rules to live by in the land that he gave them. And one of those rules was an institution called Leverite marriage. Sometimes you hear it referred to as kinsman redeemer. Essentially, the brother or close relative of a childless man's widow was obligated to marry the widow to produce children to carry on the family line and preserve the family's property. This prevented family lines from dying out and it prevented childless widows from being left in poverty. You see this all laid out if you want to read about it more in Deuteronomy 25. But the kinsman redeemer is also a picture of Christ rescuing people who have no hope 
apart from his gracious actions. And as we mentioned earlier, the worst, most hopeless position in the ancient world was to be a widow with no sons to care for you. But that pales in comparison to the hopeless position we are in as enemies of God, which is where we all start out. We have no hope of rescue unless God acts on our behalf, unless God himself is willing to be our redeemer and praise God that he is. And the amazing thing about the book of Ruth, and this really stood out to me as I was thinking about this teaching, the amazing thing about the book of Ruth is we see these promises that God made over the generations intertwined and worked out through the laws that he gave Israel for their conduct in the promised land. The rescue plan that God put in place for widows among his Old Testament people is used to bring about his rescue plan for the entirety of his people throughout the ages. That's a beautiful thing. The ultimate reason for Levite marriage was to work out God's plan revealed way back in Genesis 3.15. Nothing, nothing is random with God. Every jot and tittle is there for a reason. Um, so as you're, as you're going through your Bible reading plan, when you get bogged down in Leviticus and Numbers, remember that, that it's all in there for a reason, for a purpose. So Boaz does redeem Ruth. He acts as the kinsman redeemer. And we read this beginning in chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So we find out at the end that Boaz and Ruth give birth to the grandfather of King David. The Moabitess from a pagan land is the great-grandmother of Israel's greatest king. You know, when I read fiction, I love to read classic murder mysteries. Think, you know, Agatha Christie or Dorothy Sayers. And what's so interesting about these to me is the plot. The author takes you through a series of events and you try to make sense of them. And most of the time you can't, or at least I can't, um, until the very end. And all is revealed. And then you say, now I get it. Right? Now I see why that happened. Now I understand what that meant. And this is kind of what happens in Ruth. It's not until the end that you see what God is doing through all the struggles and all the hardships and even all the joys of these people. And remember, this all happened during one of the worst periods in Israel's history. You know, Mark Dever in his overview of, of Ruth says, Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz may live in the time of the judges. In other words, may live in a really, really bad time. But God uses this little family to prepare the nation for a king and a king after God's own heart. And I would add there that he uses them to bring about his plan for the birth of the Savior many generations later. So friends, we're, we are still being used by God in ways we don't understand. 
our sufferings and our joys are the means that he is using to bring about his purposes in the world to prepare it for his second coming. We don't always get it, right, when things happen to us or when events in our culture are happening that seem to spin out of control. But we know that the author, in this case, the author of life itself, has written the plot and he has a plan. And one day we will look back on our lives and we will think, now I see why that happened. I'll I'll invite the band to to come back up as I I finish. If you'll indulge me for a couple more minutes, I want to compare two passages of scripture for you this morning that really stood out to me as I was thinking about this. I want to read the last verses of the book of Ruth. And then I want to read the first verses of Matthew and, and indeed of the entire New Testament. So Ruth 4, beginning in verse 18, says this. And listen to these names. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And that's how the book of Ruth ends. Now let's look at how the New Testament begins many hundreds of years later. Matthew 1, beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And now listen to these names again. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And then it goes on from there with additional genealogy. But do you see here how God redeemed the difficulties of an Israelite widow and her Moabite daughter-in-law by using them as one of the means through which the Savior came? Neither Ruth nor Naomi had any idea that one day both their hardship and their obedience in that hardship would be used by God in this way. Boaz had no idea that his faithfulness would be used in that way. They simply lived obedient lives among God's people And trusted the Lord. And friends, that's what we're called to do. We're called to do the same in our circumstances. Cling to the Lord and trust his promises. Cling to the people of God, his church. Live lives of obedience and trust God for the results. You know, Gary Phillips in his commentary, and I'll I'll close with this, on Ruth, he says this. God wants his children to be faithful, to live extraordinary lives in subordinary times. Boaz and Ruth were ordinary people who lived faithful lives. In contrast, he says to the book of Judges, this small book contains no miracles. It is simply life as usual. But from God's point of view, life as usual is eternal value or has eternal value. So we won't always understand, but we can rest assured that one day the plot will be resolved. And when we stand before the Lord, if we're his followers, we will hear well done, good and faithful servant. And in that moment, it will all have been worth it. It will all have been worth it. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the story of Ruth.
Thank you that it reminds us of your faithfulness to us, even when we are often not faithful to you. Help us to live ordinary lives in extraordinary ways that spread your fame among the lost and encourage the found. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.